The following message is distributed by the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Father, here we are, Lord, asking that you would take all of us, that we would offer our lives to you as a sacrifice, Lord, that would bring glory and honor to your name, but Lord, also would bring great joy and meaning to our lives. So Lord, as we uh, think about your call to go to the nations, and we think about what, what that means for us in our individual lives, as we think about what that means for us as a church, and Lord, what that means even for your universal global church, Lord, I, I pray that you would grow in us a love for you, a love for your will, a love for your name to be known and proclaimed to the ends of the earth, Lord. So, Lord, grow, grow that in us, and um, Lord, would you use the words of this passage uh, to help, Lord, grow, grow us and how we can participate, Lord. But, Lord, also that you would, uh, Lord, help us be faithful to you first and foremost. So, Lord, be with us this morning, and would you be honored in our time together in your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, this week, there have been many uh, what I'm calling providential ironies that keep popping up and have made this a peculiar week. Uh, about a month ago, we announced that the, today would be our, our mission Sunday, and uh, that's pretty normal because our, our aim around this time of year is to do something missions related and to keep that just alive in our church uh, as we think about our, our role and what, what God is doing across the world. So everything seemed normal. Um, but then on Thursday this week, it came at least to my knowledge that Russia had invaded Ukraine and had, had dropped bombs across many cities in their country. And this led to a flurry of conversations in that we know globally things are happening everywhere all the time. But this one was a little different because we have a ministry partner, Oleg Collin, who is in that very city. And uh, so in wrestling with that uh, and just grappling with the consequences of, of what this means for his life, for his church, for his ministry. Um, this, this sermon, this Mission Sunday, began to take on a little bit of a different gravity. Similarly, this week, um, on Thursday through Saturday, ICS, or Intermountain Christian School, they put on a spring play on Anne Frank, the diary of Anne Frank. And as many of you know, this looks at a Jewish family who is being persecuted because of their faith by a tyrannical leader in government. And again, this, there's something that in this brought something to surface about the, 
the plagues and troubles of this life and the world around us. So those two are more serious ironies. And then there's a little more of a humorous one that came. So on on Friday, I received an email from a a global snack subscription. So we have this, subscribe to this thing called Universal Yums. And so we get sent a box, thanks to Andrew. Andrew told me about this. But we get sent a box from different countries uh, around the nation, and we get a sample, you know, some of their some of their snacks. So we've got like a sample one. We got one from Poland. We got another from France, and I got an email updating that their the country that they're going to feature this month was Russia. And and here's the quote in their email. They said, "We understand that you may have mixed feelings about receiving a box from Russia, which is why for March we are offering you an opportunity to switch your box to another country." So, for whatever reason, cannot escape something that's going on here. And, um, and it's interesting because here we, we talk about two very serious realities. And then personally, you know, I, I could be the grieved person that I have to, you know, oh, I don't want a box from Russia. Come on, you know. But, but in this, this, this topic has, has been kind of drilling in to me. And and so what was supposed to, for me to be another usual routine, common mission Sunday, it's taken on an unexpected gravity. And prior to these events for this Sunday, I chose the passage of Matthew 24, 14. And this is a very common passage when it comes to missions. So I was like, well, we'll preach on that. But, uh, and I had some ideas about what I wanted to say, but the interesting thing is that and what I hadn't fully contemplated yet was the context in which this passage sits. So I, I don't know exactly what God is doing here, though I believe that God is always at work in both the mundane and the crazy. Um, but what I do know is that it feels like this week I've been getting, getting awakened after do- dozing off for a short time. I feel like I've been getting awakened to some alarming realities that are challenging my comfort and peace. Now, in one sense, global pandemic has done that for a lot of us. But there's a whole nother weight to global war and that threat as we think about that. And so, as I've been challenged by this, it, it hasn't necessarily led me to fear and anxiety but it's been pushing me more towards a sober-minded faith. A sober-minded faith and trust that God is unfazed by this, and he's going to continue in the course of proclaiming the gospel to all nations, though the nations rage. So as we look at this passage, let's see what he has to say for us today about the gospel going forth in tumultuous times. So we're going to be picking up in uh, verse 1 so that we can get some context, um, but majority of our time will be later spent in verse 14. So open Matthew 24, 1, hear the word of the Lord. Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. But he answered them, you see all these, do you not? Truly, I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. 
As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And Jesus answered them, See that no one leads you astray, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of the birth pains. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another, and many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And the gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. So this passage begins with what is commonly known as the Olivet Discourse. It's in the book of Matthew, it's Jesus' fifth discourse and teaching section. Uh, after Jesus and his disciples leave the temple in Jerusalem, and they get far enough away, I assume they come to some stunning vantage point where they can overlook the city and see the temple in all its glory. And so the, the disciples direct Jesus' attention to the beauty of the temple in which Jesus says, Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. So if you're the disciples, you're like, huh? <laughs> what did you just say? Isn't the temple, the, you know, like the center point of our faith, and you're saying that it, it's going to be thrown down? And so it seems that the scene ends right there, and they're left contemplating that and what that could possibly mean. So then later, as Jesus sat on the Mount of Olives, his disciples come to him privately, asking what appears to be one jumbled long question. Tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? So what the disciples likely intended to be a single thought with layered questions appears to be a couple questions in the mind of Jesus. The first question, just as we look at it here, is when will these things be? When is the end? When will the end come? When on the timeline? Second question, what will be the sign of your coming and the sign of the end of the age? What are, what are the signs that this is imminent? So the Olivet Discourse is a fascinating passage, and this whole thing is actually not our primary focus this morning. And in fact, our, our section of the text will only deal, deal with part of the first question, the when question. Um, so if you want more preaching on this, I'd encourage you to send a kind note to Pastor Steve requesting that he preach Matthew next, um, and we'll let him deal with the rest of it. Um, but I'm going to deal with just a part of the when question here this morning. And, and I think the when question is, is a question that we can all connect with and perhaps even long for. We like to know when because uh, often we want to know something right now, 
and we don't have patience, and we want to avoid hardship, so if we can know when, that will help ease us. Um, some of us on the negative side, we, we want to know how much time we have so that when things start to get, we can, we can live to the fullest and then we can get our life in shape. And so we all interact to the when question, and, and it's natural. It's natural that the disciples would uh, come and ask him that. But as they come and ask him the when question, Jesus doesn't seem too concerned to tell them exactly when. But instead he tells them what must take place first. So for the disciples, they likely think that the destruction of the temple could be the sign of the end times. They think that Jesus is here. He's going to destroy the temple. He's going to set up his kingdom. The end is beginning now. And I think the, temple, the disciples are tempted to believe that the end is upon them right now. And, uh, and so their, their hope is fixed upon Jesus to bring about the end in a fully, formally, bodily establishment of his kingdom. No more waiting. But for Jesus, I think he reveals that this isn't the way it'll be. Instead, he helps them with a lesson on expectations and patience. The same lesson that both me and my four-year-old need. <laughs> so what, what are they to expect? Well, the, the passage kind of lays out two levels of, of expectation here, one in verses 4 through 8 and the next in 9 through 13. Um, the first one is trials for the world in verses 4 through 8. So wh what are these trials? He says that deceivers in the form of false teachers and prophets are going to emerge they're going to lead many astray. And, and I think this is why we can look at the history of religion and see how many offshoots of religion there are, how many things have defected from God, how God has revealed himself in the Word and Bible and added to that. So we see just trials. Of, there's, there's a question for truth and deceivers in the form, in all kinds of forms. The second thing we see in trials for the world, world is that there's wars and rumors of wars. And both are damaging. <laughs> the war is especially damaging, but even the rumor of war leaves someone li living in a constant state of fear in the anticipation of what will happen. Other trials are, we see are famines and earthquakes. So these, these trials in this age, these are all necessary going to happen. And, you know, if there was a word or concept of pandemic, maybe that would have gotten thrown in there too but it certainly fits in the idea of, of trials for the world. The second thing, in verses 9 through 13, we see that there are trials for Christians. So, as we often talk about um, common grace and special grace, right? Common grace falls on all people. Special grace is unique to Christians and how God saves. There's kind of a flip here that there's the trials of the world are the common trials. All the world is going to experience these trials. It's part of living in a fallen, broken world. But for the trials of the Christians, instead of special grace, it's like special trials. There's a unique trial and calling to the Christian life that's added on to the trials for the rest of the world. And what are those? Well, more or less persecution. He talks about being put to death, hated by all nations for associating with the name of Jesus, which this makes sense and happens all the time. In many ways, 
Christians are some of the greatest threat to nations around the world because they worship a different God. They have an authority higher than the government themselves. So we see that there's persecution, that Christians are put to death. We also see that we're going to face defection, people falling away from the faith. We're going to face betrayal, a rejection, or people ratting out Christians and turning them over, which we see, you know, if you're familiar with the Anne Frank story, happens to Jews, and especially in that case. And then we see also one of the trials is that there's going to be an increase in lawlessness that leads to a cooling of love, to a hardening of heart that is not sensitive to God and His law and His ways. So we see these two trials, trials to the world and trials to Christians, and that these are, are what to expect. And so the question still stands, when will these things be? When is the end of the age? What should the disciples expect to see happen before the end? In the end, Jesus doesn't answer their question so that they can plan accordingly with incredible precision and predict the end. No. He answers this question to help set their expectations that many things, many hard things must happen first. You see this in verse 6 where he says, the end is not yet. Verse 8, all these things are, are but the beginning of birth pains. So, Having considered this dismal series of sobering realities, once we get to verse 13, there's a glimmer of hope. There's a promise laid out there that says, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. So the end, what, what does he mean by the end? The end here could be one of two things. One, we die. Or two, Christ has actually physically returned and, and established his kingdom. But the one who endures till the end, there's a promise there. He or she will be saved. So this, this last verse shows us the primary intention of why Jesus is even addressing this question of when to begin with. He desires to prepare his disciples for faithfulness until the end. And he does this by helping them with their expectations Yet, he doesn't provide a specific answer to their question in the way that they were hoping. In the end, the greatest concern isn't uh, that they know when he'll finally establish his earthly kingdom reign, but rather what to expect until then. So, some of you might be thinking, what does this have to do with missions? Well, I think it has a lot to do with missions because it's the whole context in which missions will take place. And even more of that, it's the whole context in which the Christian life will be lived. And so now we come to our primary verse this morning, verse 14. I'm read it one more time. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. So we'll look at this verse in three primary sections, and then I'll make a, a couple applications on it. So uh, part one, and this gospel of the kingdom will, will be proclaimed throughout the whole world. So here we see the phrase gospel of the kingdom. What, what is the gospel of the kingdom? 
Well, the word for gospel is evangelion, which you would hear of evangelical, evangelist, right? And that simply means good news. So then good news of what? Good news of the kingdom. So what's the good news of the kingdom? I think it's this, that after years of separation, God has come to the earth as the man Jesus, the true king whom all of history in the Bible has anticipated. The king has come to establish his kingly reign and to call, call all the world to repentance and submission to his reign and to provide salvation to all who come to him, humbly calling upon his name. So the gospel of the kingdom is good news because all of history has been a cyclical pattern of death and sin and disease and corrupted power and authority and of suffering. And it's good news. It's good news, but also we we see that there's a seed of glory and greatness in mankind, but this, this seed that we've been creating in the image of God but has been corrupted from its original form and design. So the good news is that the gospel of the kingdom has come because the world has been separated from its creator and it's in need of a ruler, a good and just ruler that it might flourish under the sovereign hand of God and more specifically under the sovereign hand of King Jesus. So this is the good news of the kingdom that God is coming to restore a people to himself. And the world does, will not flourish, thrive without the presence of God because all things are dependent on him. So this, this gospel of the kingdom is good news. So we see that the gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed. Looking at that next part of will be proclaimed. So here this idea or the verb of, of uh, proclaimed could also mean preached heralded. So it's, it's usually a proclamation that comes with formality, gravity, authority. Um, Jesus, uh, the same word, the same kind of preaching is ascribed to Jesus in a number of other places in Matthew. In Matthew 4.17, he says, Jesus began to preach, saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. 4.23, and he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. In Matthew 9.35, And Jesus went, out, went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and again, healing every disease and every affliction. So this, this proclamation that's going to happen is the same proclamation that Jesus was about in his life, the proclamation of the gospel of the kingdom. And as we look at this, at this verb, I want to break down some of the language here. So if there's any language nerds in here, this is for you. Um, so the verb of will proclaim here is, is a future passive indicative. Got that? Write it down. I'm just kidding. So the future part, this will happen, right? In the future. And there's certainty here because when God uses the, the future tense, it's certain. Right? When we use the future tense, we, we got to preface everything with Lord willing. But here God says, God says that uh, the gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed. And if this is coming from, from Jesus himself, there's a certainty to this. So that, that's the future aspect of it. 
Second aspect is uh, that this verb is passive. So this, this, ver- this proclamation needs to happen by an agent, agent. And first of all, God is the agent that has pro- been proclaiming salvation, and it's been his mission from the beginning. But we see that that comes particularly in this moment in time through Christ. Christ is the one that is bringing the gospel of the kingdom. And so there's a combination that this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed, and as we think about how that's going to play out, it's going to be a combination of ultimately it's God. It's his gospel. But then God is very pleased to use man as well. But that the gospel needs to be proclaimed. The third thing, uh, this verb is indicative, which says that this is to be continual and ongoing, not just one time, but the gospel will be continually in an ongoing manner pro- proclaimed. That is, until the end comes. So with this, we, we, we can see um, that the gospel kingdom is going to pro- be proclaimed till the end. And so uh, the next question is, uh, to whom? Where, where is this gospel going to be proclaimed? Well, it's going to be proclaimed throughout the whole world. And here is the world. We, we, the idea of world here is the inhabited earth. So to the extent of where there are people, where they geographically live, and this is not just the world in a geographic sense, but this is the whole inhabited world that God is going and pursuing peoples. And we'll come back to that term here in a minute. So the gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world. This moves us to the second part here. The gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed to the whole world as a testimony to all nations. The word testimony um, will sound familiar. The, the Greek word is martyrion. And if you hear the word martyr in there, that's, that's the idea. And it's where we get the word martyr. And additional words that could help us understand testimony is a witness or an evidence. So one, one helpful way to think about this is a courtroom scene, right? So you can think in a court where they call a witness to provide a testimony or to provide evidence of what they saw, right, to help fill in the story, reflect the truth. I think it gives us a good idea of, of what a witness is supposed to do. But for the context to see how witnesses actually applied in this context, I think it's helpful to like leave the courtroom scene and to take this witness out in such a way that, um, that they are to become a mobile witness. So witnessing isn't just left to one place and one time in a courtroom scene. Witnessing is to be taken out that anyone who proclaims the gospel of the kingdom is a witness wherever they go. And that they've been transformed by the realities of the gospel. And they're proclaiming that, pointing to that, a witness to that. So that, that's, that's the nature of, of witness. But to whom is this witness or testimony directed? Again, this witness is to all nations. So as we, as we hear the word nations here, um, we might be tempted to just think primarily down the lines of political nations, right? But... That's not exactly what the word and the scope of the word has, has in mind here. The, the word, this word for nations actually is the word ethnos, which you hear eth, ethnic, um, ethna, that goes before many other words. And from this word, we get the idea of peoples. 
plural, of tribes, of families. And so when we think of nations, we, we want to think about it in, in that sense. And this could include ethno-linguistic groups, so people of different ethnicity, different race, different language, different culture, a different tribe. But we see that the gospel is to go forth to all peoples, not just all political nations. So as we look at this, the greater point here is that God is ensuring that the gospel will go forth to all peoples. And this this has been his plan all along. And actually, this shows up super early in our Bible as you go back to Genesis 12. And I'll just read it. You'll be familiar with this. It says, Now the Lord said to Abraham, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And here it is. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And what's interesting, this idea of families of the earth that God promises to bless through Abraham is an even more narrow term than people's. So, so we see that from the get-go, from the early on, as God has been creating a people for himself, it has been his goal, his aim over the course of history to see the gospel go out to the nations. So we can go back to the, God's promise to Abraham and see that this has been his intent. But then Christ affirms this elsewhere. Uh, Jesus affirms this plan in Luke 24. And again, just listen here. Then he opened their minds, the disciples, to understand the scriptures. And he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. So here, Jesus says that the scriptures have been pointing to three things that's been there all along that Jesus should suffer and die, that he will rise from the dead, and three, that the gospel will be proclaimed to all nations. So after Jesus' resurrection, he, he points to the same reality that all of Scripture anticipates this moment in which the gospel will go forth and be proclaimed everywhere. So as we think about the Great Commission, it's not just another rule for the Christians to try and obey to the best of our ability. No, it's, it's way more than that. It's what all of history has been moving towards, that the gospel would be proclaimed to all people throughout the whole inhabited world. So what? How does this relate to the current context of Jesus answering the question of when will the end come? Well, that moves us to the third part. And the gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. So when will the end come? After all these trials and tribulations, and after the gospel is proclaimed to all nations, then the end will come. Now, in one sense, this is encouragement because the end is fixed. There are things that will happen, and the end will come. And it's encouraging because we see that God has been working towards this end through all of Scripture, through, through all of history. 
But what, what does this exactly mean? What, what does he mean by peoples, nations, families? What does that actually mean for the task to be complete for all people that are supposed to have heard to hear? And in the end, we ultimately don't know what God means by peoples. We don't know in the nitty-gritty details. Now, we can take some educated guesses, but in the end, this stands in the sovereign hand of God and His will and plan that He is going to pursue the peoples as He sees fit. There, there are many Christian missiologists, and missiologists is just a fancy word for someone who studies missions, but there are Christ, many Christian missiologists who study and define terms that help identify people groups so that the gospel can go forth um, to a couple terms that Dana used earlier, to the unreached and un, unengaged. And to see that this is done globally. So, on one hand, this, this is incredible work that Christians are doing today to see, to identify who has heard the gospel, <laughs> who has churches planted there, and who has not, so that we can go to them. This, this is incredible work, and there's awesome resources like uh, called Operation World, which is a book that identifies many people groups. There's another Joshua project online that you can get and, and see, you know, who, who are these unreached, unengaged people groups. So this, this is a great thing, and God bless these brothers and sisters who have given their life and energy to identifying and engaging the lost people of the world. And if God has been moving and progressing all of history to this end reality, wouldn't it make sense that we are strategically, enthusiastically trying to put our minds together and get to work on this? <laughs> it does. It makes a lot of sense. But on the other hand, this verse can be used to sometimes subtly warp or twist the glorious reality that God is the one doing this work and unhelpfully make it man's task. And that if we can complete this task... Therefore, we can expedite the return of Jesus. And so there's nothing wrong with the logic here, but there's something slightly off that we need to check in the attitude. The attitude that thinks about reaching the world as if it's, it's like an a, a internet completion percentage bar, right? 85%, 95%, 100%. And... Again, while, while there's some encouragement to see that progress and that gives ample opportunity for praise to God, there's also a danger that we need to make sure, be careful that we see that God is the one who is the architect and mastermind completing this plan, and he will do it when he sees fit. And so I, I think uh, that this passage is included here not so that we can calculate the timing and return of Jesus, but as we were talking about, this passage is here because Jesus is answering the one question so that we might have faithful endurance amidst these trials, amidst the continual emergence of false prophets and teachers, that we can have faithful endurance amidst, amidst wars and rumors of wars and famines and earthquakes, that we can have faithful endurance in personal tribulations and betrayals and when we are hated and when we are martyred and put to death for our faith. So we can have faithful endurance in increasing lawlessness 
that we can have faithful endurance when our brothers and sisters leave the faith, when, they're cold, when, their, heart, when their heart and their faith grows cold. In this age before the end, the presence and reality of these tribulations and trials, Jesus is telling us this is normal. This is to be expected. And so Jesus is preparing them for faithful endurance through the worst of the worst while also guaranteeing the victory, encouraging us to know that God will one, complete, God will one day complete the task because he said he will, and he's God, and he always does what he says. So in many respects, one of the greatest advantages of the Christian life is that we are called to live with the end in mind. And this is especially true here, that God has told us what is going to happen. We know the end result. We know that we cannot lose. So this emboldens us to play our role with confidence and faith in the sovereign will of God that it doesn't land on us to make this so, because God's got it. But what it does push us towards is to say, what, what is our role? We see that the gospel will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. This is God's plan and will for the world, and through all of this, he has deemed it most fitting for his name to be glorified and our joy complete. So, having walked through the text here, now I want to think about a a couple applications as we think about, first, what is God's role and what is our role? And then second, what does it look like to be a faithful witness? How How do we do that? So, God's role. In relation to God's role, we rest in the reality that world missions is God's task. Right? So God's role. We rest in the reality that world's mission, world missions is God's task. In the reality of this, and I, I hope you can hear this, and this is a freeing thing, God doesn't need you. <laughs> He's got it. <laughs> He's been working on this for so many years. So Let's, let's not turn this into a legalism that we have to do something we are needed. If we don't do our part, God's, God, it's not going to happen. No. <laughs> he's got this. God, like I said he, earlier, he's the architect. He's the power behind the whole operation that spans all of history. And we need to check the motivational tendencies towards guilt and shame. And so, so many missions and ministries, agencies, kind of poke a little bit of this. There, there's, a, there's a little bit of twisting, a little bit of guilt, a little bit of shame. You need to. You should be, right? And we're prompted to give. We're prompted to go. We're prompted to pray. But not, not out of right motivation. And so we, we want to check that in our hearts and see that this mission is not completely dependent on us. It's dependent on God. Okay, so that, that's God's role. But does that mean that we just don't do anything? <laughs> Are we the frozen chosen? You know, got our, got our faith, going to lock it down and ride this one out? No, we have a role too. And so our role, we are called to an active faith, faithful witness to the nation's. We are called to an active, faithful witness to the nations. 
So here's the reality about this one. God delights in your participation. God delights in your participation. And in fact, our participation in this is in the end what is going to bring God glory and is what is, and what is going to bring us the most joy. God is the most, and, and think about Christ, he's the most joyful being ever to exist. And what's his heart? He's moving towards other people. He's about the nations. He's about the lost. So if that's his joy, that he would endure the cross for that purpose, to honor God in that way, doesn't it stand that it would equally be our joy to pursue other people in the same manner, in the same love? So we see that God, he delights in our participation, and there's a glory and joy to this. And uh, as Steve in the past is so often well-pointed, and that's why he commands it. That's why he commands a great commission, because that's about our joy and our participation in the glory of God. The reality that there are uh, spiritual spiritual beings looking on to earth to see how God restores a lost people and that he's pleased to use other small, humble men and women like you and I to advance that message. There, there are angels and demons looking on to this with eagerness, with awe to how God will pull this off. And he's given us a role in that. And as we come to something like the Lord's Prayer, where we say, your kingdom come, your will be done, I don't, I don't think we can think about that or say that without thinking about God's kingdom going to the nations. And if that's his will and his desire, wouldn't we conform ourselves to that? <laughs> your, your kingdom come, your will be done. So that, that's our role, that we are called to an act of faithful witness. So wh- what does this faithful witness look like? Um, three, three simple things here. I'll say kingdom proclaiming, kingdom living, and kingdom loving. So kingdom proclaiming. So our faithful wit- witness looks like kingdom proclaiming. So we are to proclaim the true gospel, not ashamed of it, but... As we are fed and filled by the word, we share of who God is, what he's doing, as we overflow with joy and are characterized by grace. So, so the question is, do we know the gospel? Do we proclaim the gospel? Do we pray and ask God for opportunities to do this, trusting that he will meet us with specific chances? The gospel goes forth only as we open our mouths to proclaim. In Romans 10, it says, How will they call on him who they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching, proclaiming? How are they to preach or proclaim unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach, of those who proclaim the good news. So faithful witness looks like kingdom proclamation. People can't know there's a kingdom unless they're told there's a kingdom. So that's, that's part of our role of a faithful witness. We proclaim the kingdom. The second is kingdom living. And kingdom living in a way that our life is so transformed by the gospel 
that we no longer identify with this world. So much to the point that we would die for it. We would die to see the gospel go to the ends of the earth. And like I mentioned earlier, this is why the Christians are most dangerous. (laughs) Is that they live under a different king, a different authority, and they're willing to die for what they believe. If there's not power behind something, that's it. Now, again, it's not to say that no one can, you know, that people can't die for other reasons. People have died for lots of things. But the regularity with which Christians die and are put to death for the sake of the gospel is unique. And numerous times in my own life, I've had to wrestle with this kind of submission. Am I really willing to die for the sake of the gospel? And in the past, by God's grace, I've been able to answer yes. But you know what's interesting? For some reason this week, it's been really hard for me to answer yes. It's hard for me to say, yes, I'm willing to have my life poured out and ended for the sake of the gospel. And just because I've answered this question once in the past doesn't mean that I'm willing to do that today. So, why is that? Is that faith, faith that grows cold? Well, I think in my, in my case, I've been wrestling with the fact that I, I've gotten really comfortable. I talked about dozing off. <laughs> dozing off because I got my needs met, I'm happy, I'm content. The realities of the world are, are lost and put behind me. So, how about you? How, have you answer, how would you answer that question? How, how have you answered in, in the past? How would you answer it right now? Are you willing to die for the gospel? And this is a question that I think is important for us to sit with, to acknowledge. Because the words that Jesus just said to his disciples, isn't that true of us too? We should expect that, be ready for that. Now, is it going to be true in every individual's case across the time of history? No, it's not. But there's a heart there that recognizes where, where life is found. And, that, that, and that, this idea points to this kingdom living, that there's a life transformed that doesn't identify with this world. But then the third, we see this idea of kingdom loving. And it's love towards others that embodies the gospel. So this kingdom loving, love is what causes someone to get on a boat or a plane, to head to a nation that they know very little about so that they might proclaim the gospel. There's a group of missionaries that would get put on a boat and they would put all their belongings in a casket expecting to die. Love is what drives somebody to go somewhere where they are uncomfortable. Love is what drives someone across cultural lines to be completely out of their element. Love puts the needs of another as greater than their own. So the question, has your love cooled? Are we asking God to warm up our love that we might see the nations, we might see the lost and do what we can to be a part of that?
We're called to be a faithful witness. So as we wrap up here, there's just some practical ways I want for us to think about this. What is our participation in the proclamation of the gospel? What is our participation in missions to the world, to all nations? Well, the first part, faithful witness where you are. That's where it starts. Too often we've thought about missions, we need to jumpstart missions by putting someone on a, on, you know, on a plane or sending them across a border so they can get a heart for missions. No. <laughs> Mission starts right here where God has placed you in a faithfulness to the opportunities to witness right underneath you. All of us are ministers and witnesses of the gospel. What opportunities, relationships, desires has God surrounded you with? And this is one area as a church we're super excited as we think and are continuing to refine and pursue uh, this outreach ministry. We don't, kind of, at least my operating thought process is, we don't need to go somewhere to learn how to love and share the gospel. Actually, we need to do that here, and then that compels outward. So let's, let's think about that. You know, how do you participate? Well, faithful witness where you are. Take consideration of that. Second way we can participate is prayer. We see the Apostle Paul constantly asking for prayer, praying that the kingdom would come and God's will be done, and asking churches to pray for his purposes as he goes and plants churches. So are, are we praying? So as a, as a church, we have a number of prayer opportunities or ways that we incorporate it. We have our family night prayer gatherings, which is a totally appropriate place where we want to pray for the nations. We have our missions night that we do once a year, and we're, tonight, that's a part of what we're doing. We're gathering to pray for some of our ministry partners. We try to pray for ministry partners in our service and the elder prayers. We try to be intentional towards that end to keep these things. So as a church, that's how we're pursuing it. But think about your life. How, how, do, we, how do we pray and labor for the nations? And that's why we've created a, a prayer card index. One, do we know the people we support? Two, do we pray for them? You can't pray for someone you don't know, right? So please, please take that. Use it. Third way we can participate is sending to the nations. So are there ways that you can stoke the flame of missions in your own life, in your own circles, in your own prayers to see people sent to the ends of the earth? For young, younger parents, or even for any parents, I guess this still applies, do you pray that God would be pleased to send one of your kids to the mission field. That's hard. <laughs> but do we pray for that? Do we see it as, as good? And as a church, I, I have a long-term hope that we can become a sending church and, and one that, that sends, you know, sees the gospel take root and then goes out and sends, sends to the nation, sends locally, sends in all respects. But I'm also praying that there'd be one person that would be sent from this gospel or from this church. That we, we could start with one, one to be sent. Fourth way to participate, supporting the nations. So I mentioned this a second ago. Our church has a number of ministry partners. Um, so part of, part of sending um, uh, and Piper's use this language, is that it's like you're putting someone, someone's going to go uh, uh, rappel down the side of a mountain, 
and you're, you're holding the rope, right? So they're, they're the ones going down, but someone's got to hold the rope. And sending doesn't just end with, okay, there you go, you know, and you walk away. No, sending means when, when we send or when we support, we hold the rope. We pray for them. We care for them. And so that's, that's one opportunity that I know our church is very, very, the collection, very generous and involved in the lives of many, many different people and many different ministries. And that's an incredible blessing and opportunity that we have to financially and prayerfully support many people, doing that individually and then collectively as a church. So how, how, do, we, how do we do that? And the last way we can participate is actually going to the nations. Is that a prayer that you've ever prayed? Lord, if it would be pleasing to you, I'm willing. Send me. I think that's a prayer that we should more regularly have on the tips of our tongues. And again, not everyone can go. I recognize that. But someone might. So as we open-handed come to God with our lives, let's take that request to Him. And and if there's even a little interest or prodding and you feel that God may be directing you to just even simply entertain this thought, I'm not saying like I'm going, but if you're entertaining that thought, please share with one of the elders, share with me. I'd love to pr- just pray for that, that God's will would be done. So as we come to the end here, th- those are five ways we can participate. But uh, as as brothers and sisters in Christ, we have a faithful gospel witness to the end. And uh, we're seeking to do our very, the very small role that God has called us to do, knowing that one day he is going to gloriously finish the task. So let's, let's pray and ask that God would, one, finish the task in his timing, and two, be pleased to use us in however he best sees fit. Father, we come to you, Lord, um, thankful that you are the kind of God with the heart and love that wants the nations to be restored to you. So, Lord, would you make that, would you give us that same heart, that same desire? Would you help us to see that this momentary life is fleeting? And, Lord, help us to be a part of your movement towards the ends of the world, ends of the earth, Lord, however you see fit. And Lord, we know we are very small, we are weak, <laughs> we are comfortable, especially me. Lord, would you, would you help us to um, move towards others as you, as you do? So Lord, as we, as we sing this last song, Lord, um, help us to give our hearts to you. Lord, to say here we are, willing to be of help in any way that we can. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this message recorded at the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcevfree.org or call us directly at area code 801 
1-800-242-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.